Welcome to this installment of the WGA Reading Series. My name is Heidi Klassen, and I'm delighted to be speaking today with Allie Bryan about her latest book, The Hill, released by Daughter Press this past spring. This event is sponsored by Read Alberta, spearheaded by the Book Publishers Association of Alberta. Read Alberta is a hub where Alberta's readers, authors, publishers, booksellers, and libraries can connect, support, and learn more about one another. They feature work by Alberta publishers and Alberta authors and illustrators in celebration of the distinct diverse voices coming out of our own province amidst a shared backdrop of prairie fields, windswept badlands, boreal forest, rolling foothills and majestic mountains. You can check out their website at readalberta.ca. Before we begin, um, I would like to acknowledge that Ali and I are currently situated in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play in the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksiga, Ghana, and Pekani Nations, the Stony Nakoda First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Métis Nation Region 3. Okay, a little bit about Allie. Get comfy because <laughs> this will take a minute. Allie Bryan is an award-winning novelist and creative nonfiction writer based in Calgary. Her first novel, Roost, published by Freehand Books in 2013, won the Alberta Literacy Award, Literary Award for Fiction and was the official selection of One Book Nova Scotia in 2014. Her second novel, The Figs, also published by Freehand, was released in May 2018 and was shortlisted for the Stephen Leacock Memorial Medal for Humor. She has twice been longlisted for the CBC Canada Writes Creative Nonfiction Prize and was shortlisted for the John White Memorial Essay Award in 2015. Allie won the 2020 Howard O'Hagan Award for Short Fiction. She is also a recipient of the 2018 Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Emerging Artist Award. She is currently the author in residence for the Calgary Public Library and has also been chosen as Wilfrid Laurier University's Edna Stabler Writer in Virtual Residence for Winter 2022. Welcome, Allie. Wow, out of breath after all those accomplishments. <laughs> I think I can quit now. I think I don't need to write anymore. <laughs> sounds like you need yeah, a break. That sounds more, more illustrious than it actually is because we, we don't know what it's really like to be a writer. But thank you for that uh, introduction, Heidi. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, we're here to discuss your third novel, The Hill, which is a story of dystopian community of girls living off the land. In this case, a former landfill on an unnamed island. So think Lord of the Flies meets Lost with a dash of Hunger Games and Handmaid's Tale. Um, that said, Allie's work is crafted in a way that's fresh and unpredictable. Allie, I absolutely loved it. So um, I really want to know what your inspiration was for the garbage dump, because that is a fascinating setting. Yeah. Um, it, um, <laughs> the garbage dump was was an interesting setting. And actually, I was on a trip with a troop of girls in an I was in an acrobatic troupe that I used to run a long time ago in a, in a past life. And we had a show in Virginia. So we were traveling from the airport in Virginia to Norfolk. Um, of course, because it's a huge naval base and the show was actually part of a military tattoo. And as we were driving down the, the interstate, um, I noticed these large sort of hills that didn't seem natural. Uh, not that I had a good indication of what uh, Virginia state geography looked like before <laughs> I landed in the state, uh, but it just looked sort of peculiar. So I remember asking sort of the tour guide or the driver, you know, what's up with these hills? And she said, oh, we call those trash mountains. 
She said they are essentially a landfill that has been basically buried and reclaimed. And, um, you know, they just, these big kind of humps and just green grass landscaped just off the side of the road. And I thought, okay, that's interesting that, you know, the garbages are buried and buried in these huge heaps. And since then, I've heard of other um, readers or writers say, oh, we've got one like that in Manitoba. Or we've got one over here. Uh, so, yeah, I just thought what an interesting um setting for a story but also um you know there's so much more in that landscape you know it, it's automatically going to start a conversation about things like um you know fast fashion and the stuff we use and consumerism and junk and the garbage we create um so it it kind of provided a nice background to have some of those conversations without it being overtly a book about the environment right yeah trash mountain I like that <laughs> yeah. yeah it was well, a weird thing to be kind of proud of but then I thought well what else do you do with with the dump when when you have finished using said dump it was peculiar that there was so many in a row so I don't know yeah. if this was a part of the state that had like recently been developed or you know it, it maybe used to be outside of the city and then the city grew and kind of pushed up against it but um yeah it was kind of a an interesting an interesting sightseeing uh tidbit for sure. Well, maybe you can uh, read a little bit from your book and we can get a feel for that trash mountain. Sure. Okay. So I am going to read um, from chapter five. So we're fast forwarding in the story a little bit. And just to give you a brief context here, um, Ren has recently become in charge of this hill of girls. And she's just realized that one of them has gone missing under her charge. And this is a little bit disturbing because um, it's part of her responsibility to keep all the girls on the hill. And the only eyewitness to the disappearance of a girl named Harlow uh, was from a three-year-old named Arrow. So Ren is off to seek Arrow's help in determining what in fact happened to Harlow. Arrow drinks soup from a bowl, flanked by collectors double her size. When she's lapped up all the broth, she uses her hands to scoop out the curled greens and chunks of white fish. A forager tosses me a blackberry. Use your spoon, Arrow. Done. She wipes her chin with her bare arm, sits proudly back on her heels, and gnaws on a piece of rye bread. Ember tries to lick her face, and she bats her away. Come here, girl. I eat the berry and sit on the ground, where Arrow crawls over and rests her head against my chest. She plays with a tiny rock hanging from the chain around my neck rolls it between her thumb and pointer finger. Her eyes are heavy. Since when are you into nap time? I rouse her from her reclined position, bounce her on my knee. Her head falls forward. I brush away the damp strings of hair that have fallen out of her knot and stick to her sweaty forehead. Where's Harlow? I whisper, trying not to rouse the interest of the others. Forest. Did you see her go into the forest? She nods and pulls from a satchel tied around her waist, a rock similar to the one dangling from her neck except this one is blue and much bigger, about the size of my thumbnail. Where did you find this? I take it in the palm of my hand. The edges are scuffed and there's a hole whittled through the middle, a bead. That all you find today? No old quilts or rubber tires or glasses? She shrugs and closes her eyes. Not yet, I say, noting that the toenail she lost on a previous dig is finally growing back in. Which forest did Harlow go into? The one by the hunting grounds or the beach one? Beach. She yawns, exposing a mishmash of crooked teeth. Did she walk in? Was she alone? Arrow yawns again and shakes her head no. No, she wasn't alone or no, she didn't walk. I sit up straighter now, every muscle in my body constricted, my mouth dry. No, she repeats. I separate the questions, reminding myself she's only three. Was she alone? Yes, Arrow answers. Did she walk into the forest? No, 
She shakes her head and begins to fuss. I rub Arrow's back. Why would Harlow crawl into the woods? Unless she was sick and had to vomit, brought to her knees by fever or flu or spoiled food. I think of last night's crickets, nutty and charred, and I pick at the seed wedge between my teeth and shiver. She would not just run away, slipping out a line, crawling to escape detection. Even a mention of the east side forest made her cry. The manual terrified her. And if she had just upped and walked away like Torah, someone would have seen her. Someone would have stopped her, hauled her back by her hair. I begin to think Quinn is right and wonder why I believe a three-year-old. A bird the size of my fist pecks at the ground and retreats. Maybe Harlow took Quinn's spear knowing Quinn would have to go back for it. And when she did, she crawled away undetected. No one was watching the back of the line. There was opportunity, but why? Unless she wanted to die. Occasionally, some girls wanted to. I shift my position and look at Arrow. So Harlow crawled in? Arrow shakes her head on her back. Wait a minute. I prop her on my lap so she's directly in front of me and blow in her face. She winces. Look at me. What do you mean on her back? She taps her shoulder blade. I'm confused. Like this. Arrow climbs off my lap and lies next to me on the grass. Her legs stretch out so that her knees fall to the side and she extends her arms overhead. That's impossible, I say. You can't move like that. Arrow sighs in frustration and closes her eyes. Quinn nudges me from behind with her knee and I jump. Quinn, don't do that. You scared me. She rests her chin on my shoulder and whispers in my ear, you can move like that if you're being dragged. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I love it. Um, wow, there are some really strong female characters and the girls, I mean, this is a matriarchal society. So did you intend for this novel to be feminist or did it just kind of evolve that way? kind of evolved that way. I mean, if you have a group of girls living together on an island, it's going to be inherently feminist just by the nature of it being an all-girl society. Um, but I wanted to kind of examine girls in, uh, I guess, in all of the way that makes them human. So, um, you know, challenging, I guess, some of the stereotypes that we see in, in females. Uh, for example, there's a lot of girls who get angry in this book and you know, anger is not often an emotion that's afforded to, to females. We're kind of taught not to be, or if not, if we are, then there's a stereotype that goes along with that. Um, I wanted to write a book that where girls could kind of explore who they were without a sense of shame. Um, so, you know, there's some girls that are sort of questioning their sexuality in this book. There's girls that are questioning sort of their role, uh, both the assigned role that they've been given and, uh, you know, future roles. So there's girls in this book that, you know, are horrified at the thought of being assigned to be a mother. And so I wanted to kind of look at all of these different ways to be a girl um, that I didn't necessarily see in, in literature um, and just... I guess that automatically kind of made it a feminist book because I guess my version of feminist feminism or what I subscribe to is just the the notion of women having choices like being in a situation where there's choice so in this book. Um, the girls frequently have choice they frequently are allowed to kind of express themselves without shame or judgment um, and I wanted to make sure that that those things were also not transferred to uh, the boys in the book because sometimes. I think there's a, a propensity for feminist literature to maybe blur the line between, you know, being pro-girl and, and anti-male. Yeah. Uh, and it was important for me to have boys that also were not shamed for, for being male and also were maybe not um, stereotypical sort of characters. So 
you know, the, the, the strong guy, you know, they're the guy that, that can cry and have emotion and stuff. I hoped that those emotions were, were balanced in them as well. Yeah, I definitely think they were. And you're right. I mean, often if something is feminist, it's automatically, you know, anti, anti-boy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and if well, a feminist in that way of like, you know, they pull the helmet off in battle and they throw their hair and say, oh, I'm a woman. And, you know, so I, I wanted to sort of avoid those t- type of cliches too. And, and yeah. just, yeah, just kind of show girls and in, in the way they can be funny, the way they can be gritty, the way they can be pissed off, the way they can be loving, the way they can be maternal or not. Yeah. And kind of yeah. everything in between. Yeah. And you're right, without stereotype, right? Without that nasty woman. Yes, exactly. They're the angry yeah. woman or yeah. Um, she's yeah. lost it. She's crazy like that. <laughs> um, so it's it's classified as a YA novel, but much like the Hunger Games, the Harry Potter series, it has a really wide appeal for adult readers. So what do you think about these classifications? Um, when you started writing The Hill, were you writing for a YA audience or did you really think about that at the start? I actually intended it to be a middle grade book when I first started out because at the time my oldest who's now almost 17 was nine and she had sort of jumped from the fairy those fairy books and unicorns and that type of stuff uh, she went straight to the Hunger Games so I thought there's got to be something kind of in that nine to 12 range where we're not going to that extreme level of violence yeah. And then, you know, I know early on when I had shared some of the writing with my critique group, automatically like, hey, that's way too mature for middle grade. So, okay, a little bit of a misfire. And I kind of rewrote it from that perspective. Um, it's tricky because the protagonist is 14 and that's sort of in that strange in between age where she's almost too young for YA, but sort of too old because of the themes in the book to be middle grade. So it was a little bit of a risk, but I had at one point tried to rewrite the book uh, with Ren being older and it just absolutely didn't work. There was something about that age of 14 that I think is really beautiful. They're starting to kind of pull away into adulthood and manage sort of their changing bodies and, you know, 14 you know, in, in our society, they've got like four years to become an adult. And so that is a tremendous amount of pressure and change that they experience. And I, and they're still children at the same time. So I really loved that age and just kind of made it worked and kept my fingers crossed that despite the fact that it went against the grain in terms of the typical age classifications for YA or upper middle grade, um, that it worked and, and my publisher supported that. So that was good. Um, labels are, are tricky. I think I think they limit us and they can limit our readers. I understand it from a marketing perspective. You need to slot a book into particular, you know, genre or on a, on a shelf in a bookstore. Um, but I think we often get them wrong. And I think with this book, I have yet to really understand who my audience is. <laughs> you know, I get I get just as many comments or emails from like adult men as I do from like younger girls as I do from you know new adults like people in their 20s and then there's a kind of a huge number of like older women that are kind of reading it and reflecting on some of the themes in the book and you know things that they weren't necessarily you know weren't really discussed or so it's it's a bit of a strange um, audience I think it's almost a little bit of a niche book and you know, you had, there's, it's part adventure, it's part social commentary. Um, it's more literary in style, I guess, than some of my 
other work. So that, and it's dystopian. So it's a very strange, you know, amalgamation of, of style and genre. Um, so it's, it's found some, you know, a diverse or broad scope of readers. And I guess that's kind of fun, but that's why sometimes uh, labels can be complicating, you know? And I remember having this conversation with JL Richardson um, in a panel where she, she wrote a book. It, it's the opposite. It's marketed as adult fiction, her book, Gutter Child, which came out in the new year. Um, and I remember reading like the first page. I'm like, oh, this is totally YA. And she was like, you know, <laughs> she's getting that classification. But in that case, it was a business decision. The YA books are in the back of the bookstore. They're not, you know, front of house on that opening table, um, you know, where the adult books are. And in yeah. both cases, her can be read either way. I just, but that was my first instinct too. It's like, oh, this is totally like, would be perfect for, for high, like high school reading, um, but can be enjoyed by either. And I do think to some degree dystopian is like that. Um, you know, sure. I, read, I read the hunger games and I didn't read a ton of YA until that book came out because I was curious about it. So, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of found a very strange and diverse and interesting readership. Yeah. And I think, like you say, it, it does have a really broad scope because women are obviously interested in it because they've been there as younger girls and whatnot. And also like, I could see my 16 year old son reading it because you know, anyone who's interested in that sort of sociological dilemma, that survival when there's a group of people, you know, like I mentioned yeah. the flies kind of thing, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, you dedicated this book to your daughters. So how, how did your daughters inform the characters in The Hill? Um, well, I, in, I guess in a lot of ways, one, I think they have a sense of humor. And that was one thing that I was happy came across in this book. There's not a ton of it, um, but it usually comes out in the dialogue and in the interactions between the girls, particularly Ren and Quinn. And, you know, I've overheard conversations with my own daughters having conversations with their friends and, you know, girls are, they're funny and they're sarcastic and they're bad and they say terrible things that I found entertaining and amusing in a way that I don't think they're often portrayed. When we, when they say kind of bad things, it's usually sort of the mean girl spectrum, but this was just like witty, you know, gallows humor. Like I, I really sort of enjoyed the banter just listening to my daughter speak with their own friends. So um, humor is one of those unexpected things that I think came out of this book, but was important. Also from a, a structural point of view, it was nice to kind of break up some of the tension of the book with the humor. Um, certainly the, the physicality of the girls, um, both my girls are in martial arts. Uh, Pippa, you know, is currently wrestling. She used to do jujitsu. Odessa does used to do wrestling and jujitsu, and she now does Muay Thai. Uh, we're a very physical family. We have a wrestling room in the garage. And so that's kind of a language of love in our house is like, you know, let's go, let's go choke each other out in the garage. <laughs> Or throw each other. Um, and so, so there was definitely that physical aspect that, that helped. Um, and then just that idea of, um, I mean, the girls are kind of direct and blunt in this book. And that's something that I recognized early with my oldest, you know, when she started having challenges with friend groups, I found girls never confront each other. They come home and they talk about it and then they talk about it and then they think about it and then they talk about it with someone else and then they worry about it for a week. Yeah. And, I, you know, so I'm like, why don't you just say, hey, this bothered me and try that sort of different approach. So um, it was really important that the girls in the book, as something I try and do as a parent is to make sure they had a strong voice and to not kind of hide behind this idea that we have to like deal with it on the sidelines and overthink it and just you know, I guess, deal with things as they come and, and kind of call, call each other out. And they, they certainly do that in the book. And I think it's a skill that I've given my, my daughters, or I've hoped I've given it to them. Um, because this is the time to establish voice. 
and, you know, within their friend group so that when, you know, they're in a situation in work or in a male relationship that they, you know, or whoever, a partner that they um, have already established their voice and are comfortable using it and looking people in the eye and a lot of those things that I think girls tend to shy away from. So um, that's something that's definitely reflected in the characters in the book. And then there's some, the odd physical thing. I mean, uh, my oldest is blonde, Ren is blonde, um, you know, but Ren is actually my my youngest daughter, Odessa's middle name. Um, she was a little bit inspired by Arrow in term of, terms of her precociousness when she was that age. And Pippa wore a patch most of her life. So um, even the patch, it had a much different meaning in the book than, of course, like a real life situation where it was just an eye issue. But I kind of wrote that in as a, as a little bit of a nod to um, their experience. So yeah, I just... Um, it was hard not to use them both, I guess, as influences in, in writing the characters. Yeah, of course, for sure. Well, maybe it's a good time for some more characters from the hill. Okay. okay, so I'm going to read um, a section from chapter eight and the girls have, so Ren and Quinn have left the hill, which is against the rules, and they are searching for missing Harlow. And they've been told, of course, not to go into the east side forest. It's dangerous. They're, they're you know, they're never going to come back. And they're starting to question um, what is out there. And they have just seen a tree with the words "they're coming" um, engraved or etched into the side of the tree. Quinn hooks my arm and pulls me into her, rough and protective. My chest heaves. Who's coming? I don't know, I say, but I have a feeling we don't want them to. She exhales. That could have been there for a hundred years, she reasons, looking over her shoulder. I trace the gouges. Feels fresh. Probably a bear. That's what they do. The manual says they both claw and bite tree bark. She measures the height with her hand. Not a very big one, though. First of all, no one's seen a bear in 20 years. I'm pretty sure they're extinct. Secondly, if it was a bear, how in the heck did it learn to spell? I don't know, Quinn shrugs, maybe it evolved. The great North American spelling bear. All right then, genius, who wrote it? I run my finger through the groove of the letter G. Doesn't look like Harlow's writing. Ren, it's knifed into a tree. I know, and the letters are all uppercase. Because if she was being dragged against her will, she'd have time for proper grammar? <laughs> I'm not feeling it. Right, feelings. Ren, use your head. I just think it's old. You just said it felt fresh. Quinn takes a step back and then suddenly disappears up to her neck into a hole. We shriek in unison. She holds onto the earth, elbows splayed as if she's fallen through ice. I have no idea if her feet are dangling in midair or if her toes are touching the ground. Her expression suggests the former. Hang on, I say, grabbing both wrists. She groans, legs wriggling. Stop moving. I don't know how deep it is, she says. I imagine a sinkhole deeper than the ocean, the Mariana Trench, an endless pit, the air filmy and black. I'll pull you up, just hold on a second. I gradually peel my fingers away from her wrists. Amber barks frantically, circling the perimeter, most of which is still disguised by tangled vegetation. Be careful, Quinn warns, adjusting her position so she can grab onto a tree root. Don't fall in here with me. Her breasts are shallow and quick. I need an anchor point. The birch with the writing is too fine. I don't have any rope, nothing I can use to tie myself to for support. I find the spear wedged at an odd angle between patches of unruly ferns. I yank it free, passing her the blunt end. Are you crazy, she asks. A little bit, I mutter, bracing my ankle under the deadfall. On three, you're going to swing your legs forward. When they kick back, I'm going to pull. Keep the pressure on your elbows and grip the spear as tight as you can. She replies in hyperventilated breaths. Ember keeps up her hysteric vigil, pacing and pawing. On three, I caution. Say it with me. One, two, three. 
Her body jerks and swings expectantly. I angle my torso so I don't get impaled and I tug with every muscle fiber. Quinn grunts, her pelvis crashing up onto the lip of the crater, and I reel her in with a second explosive heave. When I'm satisfied she's safe, I drop the spear and collapse beside her. Shaking, Quinn rolls onto her back and places a steadying hand on her forehead. What was that? What is that? I correct, squeezing her hand. Natural or man-made? Well, it was concealed, like a trap. I'm guessing someone constructed it. Any sense how far it went down? I thought I felt my foot scrape something, but then it was just air. Ember climbs on top of her and licks her face. Quinn cringes and gently pushes her away. Come, Ember. Quinn stands and tries to find her bearings, her face a flush of sweat. Don't you ever do that again, I say. You scared me. You were scared. Try being the one hanging. She brushes dirt, brushes dirt from her clothes. I'll do my best not to die. I sidestep around the hole to the other side and peer into the darkness, adjusting my view to take advantage of the fragmented sunlight folding through the trees. You see anything? Quinn asks, drinking. Not sure. It seems to curve. I can't tell if I can see the bottom or not. Let's keep going. Quinn examines the backs of her arms, twisting her elbows into awkward contortions. I pull away from the edge, unconvinced. I didn't, unconvinced I didn't see a glint of something shiny. Water? Metal? The girl with the patch probably shouldn't be the one conducting reconnaissance. Quinn laces her arms through the straps of her pack. You okay? I ask, gathering my belongings. She nods. We both glance back at the birch, a wisp of bark curls levitating in the wind. Did Harlow keep a knife? I ask. Dunno. All the girls carry something for protection. Not sure about mothers. Mine had a claw hammer. Dasha had a chisel. What, you think your mother wrote it? No, I'm just saying there are girls with chisels and screwdrivers and jackknives and pry bars and scrapers. I sigh, right. Come on, Quinn urges, I'm hungry. Besides, we should be more concerned with who they are. She's right. I collect a handful of berries and empty them into my pocket, but whoever they are, if they are coming, we'll kill them. Stop there. Seems like I've picked the most violent parts of the book to read today. Yes, definitely. I'm just noticing your necklace, Allie. I seem to remember there's a story behind that. There is. This is, um, well, Bren has a leader necklace or a leader necklace is passed down from, from girl to girl. And I have a friend who is a local artist and jeweler. And so she designed a necklace for me, a head girl necklace. And so these are all things that might have been found like old sort of screws. There's a fish hook here. There's some shells, uh, things that might have washed up on shore or that were dug up from the, the garbage dump. Uh, and turned into a leader necklace. So, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, when I wear it, it doesn't make me the leader. At least I, <laughs> no one listens to me. So, it doesn't have the magic powers that I wish. Hey, that sounds have. familiar. There I need go. that magic yeah. power too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, a um, couple more questions. What were some of your influences growing up? So, which books stuck with you as a young woman? Um, well, actually, one of the early, well, one of the books that sort of influenced this, I, it was a book I read in university. It was one of my roommates and it was called Savages. I don't know if that title would stand up today, um, but it's, it was a book about a bunch of women who were on a corporate retreat with their husbands. It's very 1980s. And um, while they're gone out on an excursion, the hotel where the, the men are staying is attacked um, by terrorists. And so the women are forced into the jungle and it's a survival story. 
and they're kind of not really equipped to be living in the jungle and dealing with this sort of situation. Um, so that was a strange, loose inspiration. It's kind of a cult novel. I don't think a lot of people know about it. And it was one of those random reads that I just picked up from, from my roommate and loved. Um, so that definitely influenced The Hill. Other than that, I read a lot of the series books that most people would be familiar with. So like The Sweet Valley High, which I hated because I wanted to be the twins Jessica and Sammy or whatever the name was so badly and then of course you you know they, they probably had a more <laughs> negative impact because I couldn't be the twins I couldn't have that hair and that lifestyle um, so that's that's hard and I guess that's part of the reason I made these girls very real you know they're gritty and yeah. they're not maybe traditionally gorgeous and they're not from California and um because yeah I think that almost probably had more of a negative impact but um you know, it's probably influenced just from other kind of pop culture stuff. Um, you know, the Cindy Loppers and the, um, you know, Banana Rama, some of those kind of early kind of or later 80s girl bands later I was into sort of yeah. punk. Um, so that's probably why there's a little bit of a rebellious streak in these two girls and the sort of you know, screw the patriarchy and, and screw the matriarchy eventually as I start to learn more and more about um, what the colony was up to and, and why they're on the hill in the first place. Yeah. And yeah, um, I guess like anything else from kind of growing in that time, I, we, we know, of course, in the 80s, we were either latchkey kids or we got to sort of free roam. Um, and so I kind of brought that spirit, I guess, into this book. Um, I grew up um, from grade four on next to this wooded area. And so I spent almost all summer just running through that woods, whether it was like picking blueberries or just playing games or hiding or, you know, just fun sort of adventure. And, and that's kind of, um, I guess that wilderness sort of aspect and that free range life kind of feeds into this book too. And, and I still, you know, spend time in the mountains and, and outdoors and in nature now. So um, yeah, I, those are, a bunch of the influences on this. Okay. Well, Daughter Press has announced that this is a trilogy. Mm -hmm. So what, what have you learned in writing book one that you're going to bring to book two and three? Um, oh gosh, I wish I'd outlined a whole trilogy <laughs> before I started, uh, which makes sense. And that is the way most people go about writing a trilogy <laughs> to have a sense of uh, what's going to happen in each book. And I did not do that. I, I've um, kind of adopted my own sort of hybrid model of outlining, but also sort of writing intuitively that has worked. And that's kind of based on the notion of character as plot. Uh, unfortunately, when you've already written the first book, you are stuck with what you wrote in the first book. Not that I felt stuck, but it certainly had to direct or drive what was happening in book two. Um, so it's been quite a learning experience um, having to map out a story, um, the second book, and also leave something for the third book or have some sense of where I wanted to wanted it to ultimately finish. Um, but I also kind of love that too. Sometimes, you know, when you have something that already exists, you, you have automatic kind of limitations and, and boundaries. And so that was, that was really fun to work with. And, and I did have some sense moving forward. I, I knew it couldn't end where it ended. I, there was always intention that it would continue on. Um, I didn't know initially if it would be kind of a, a second and a third or just a second book. Um, but I have written the second book and um, I've had I've had a lot of fun because it is completely, the setting completely changes. And so 
where you have this sort of wilderness feel. I can tell you the book two is actually called The City. And so it has a much more sort of urban feel to it. It's completely different. And so, um, and so it makes it interesting for Ren to be navigating yet another sort of strange world. Um, and this time she has no manual. So that's kind of a, a fun twist. Ah, interesting. Any idea when we'll get to read The City? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's I, I'm still having to do another set of edits, um, you know, based on sort of what I'd already submitted to my agent. So um, hopefully I'll finish those up by the end of this year and at some point in the new year, um, send it back to daughter. And then from there, we'll we'll pick kind of a, a release date. So um, but I'm really excited for it. I'm I, you know, Ren is forced to grow up in this book, but obviously she changes in her um as she's forced into more sort of adversity in this this strange new world in book two so it, you know it's fun and it's exciting and um and that's what writing should be right yeah. writing should be fun and exciting and I must say because I seek that sort of adventure myself um and, and again that was ultimately one of the early reasons I wrote the book is I felt there was just like we were missing the adventure stories for girls and for women too you don't read a ton of women's fiction that is about women going on adventures they're usually tied to other sort of things that women traditionally have to deal with so I was kind of like where are the books where women go off and you know kind of explore and and do their own thing and and um you know so in writing this I guess I kind of vicariously got to adventure as well. And that was particularly nice during the pandemic because we were locked down. So it was really Absolutely. being elsewhere than, than my house. Yeah, for sure. Well, and like you said, that's what writing does for us, right? And so obviously there's some Allie Bryan in there as, long, as, as well as your daughters, right? Yeah, I think a little <laughs> bit. I think a little bit. I think, uh, you know, I certainly have done some traveling, not as, as exotic or as radical as what the girls do in the book, but um, you know, I think having it taken away from us and I, I'm reading uh, Thomas King's Indians on Vacation right now and it's all about travel. They're, they're on a trip, the, the couple in the book are on a trip in Prague and it's, and he's sort of like, the, the, the character is kind of like me, like could care less and yeah. would be more than happy to be back in Guelph, but it's having the opposite effect on me. It's like, oh, I wanna go to Prague or I wanna, I wanna go back and travel, you know? Yes. And you don't realize until it's kind of taken away and those opportunities are gone, but it just put this real um, sense of like, I need, I want to get out of here and I want to go back to kind of exploring the world. And, and um, I want my kids to, to get a sense of that too, before, before they often go to college and stuff themselves. So absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's really been a slice, Allie. Thank you for your reading you. and for answering all my questions. Um, it was really nice to dive into some of the inspiration behind the hill. And I'm looking forward to reading The City. Do you have a name for the third one yet? Oh, yes. It's called Mainland. Oh, okay. so, yes. <laughs> we eventually get there. We, we <laughs> figured it out. So, um, well, I would like to thank you, Heidi, for being such a thoughtful host with, with some really great questions. And thank you to Sadie McGilvery at the Writers Guild of Alberta. And of course, to Read Alberta for um, providing this opportunity and yeah, read Alberta books. There's, there's a, you know, talk about diversity and literature. We have it right here in this province. And so it's exciting to be a part of. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I've said it before, but these kinds of events are really the silver lining of the pandemic, you know, being able to have access to authors from all over Canada 
and Alberta specifically, but it's yeah nice to have that during these weird and stressful times. It, absolutely. And, it, and you know, it's fascinating to see sort of what has come out in the last year. We, we do have such a, a diverse range. I know there might be a thread of Western aesthetic kind of kind of going through each book. Um, you know, every work is is unique and spectacular in its own right. So um, yeah, keep reading Alberta books. I just actually picked up um, Barb Howard's new book. And so I'm excited to read that. And I think next week's reading is with Beth Sanders. I do know yes, that much. Exactly. Yeah. Beth Sanders. Right. Go Beth. <laughs> All right. Take care, Allie. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks.